0: on again and today I'm so happy to be talking more about Eastern esoteric occult thought and I don't know if you guys have noticed but don't let the blonde hair fool you I am Asian so it's always a pleasure for me to talk to people who can tell me more about Eastern traditions and today, my guest is Swami Anand Misarg.
1: That is the name, the initiate name that I received when I was initiated into a particular lineage, um, at not the start, but kind of a midpoint of my my spiritual journey, because I had I had started out as somebody, you know, when I started university, I got interested in. Western occultism and Western magic, and I did all that first. And I I liked it, and it was useful, and it caused changes in me, it caused growth in me. But I could tell, because I was also doing this as part of a history degree in kind of the history of the occult, that there was stuff that was missing from it, that that some of the, the developments of history in the West had led to a a number of gaps appearing in what would be the formula of self-transformation in Western magic. And this isn't anything new, but maybe for some of your viewers, it might be new. that see, there's a a kind of formula for self-transformation that that applies in just about every system. And, you know, the way that they do the, the formula is different, but the formula is the same. And the formula in the West, in Western magic, because of things that happened, because of the rise of um, Christianity and the kind of very sudden shift away from the pagan tradition and the Dark Ages and all kinds of other things, it lost some of the parts of that formula. And magicians realized that fairly early on, because even in the the 16th and 17th century, you had people trying to rediscover it and find different ways to make up for those gaps. And uh, in the start of the 20th century, you had Aleister Crowley bringing in elements of yoga and meditation into Western magic to make up for those gaps. And the I Ching, he was the first white man to use the I Ching that we know of. I decided to take a look then at more seriously at Western, at Eastern rather, spirituality and I became initiated into a, a, a lineage, and I also studied Qigong, practice meditation, all those things. Now, I have to say that I, I, there are people that call me Swamiji, and there are also people that call me Swami, but um, I've also been called the anti-Swami, because one of the things that happened after I went through all this, and after I had this kind of experience of um, awakening, we call it, when I started to teach, I looked at one of the biggest things you realize when you experience enlightenment is that everything people tend to assume about enlightenment is wrong. And there are a lot of people who sell spirituality in the common market, so to say, that are basing a persona on those wrong ideas. Right. People expect a guru to be this little old man who's soft spoken and gentle and uh, you know who speaks very slowly and stares long time into the somewhere behind you in the distance right and and who will do everything with this like quietness and gentleness and will talk about gentle things and white light and whatever right and and there's this entire you know what what I've called the satsang circuit of supposed teachers that go around usually always to the same cities, right? Sedona and Byron Bay and places like that. And people pay 50 bucks or whatever to sit and, and listen to him talk about quietness and things like that, right? <laughs> so I, uh, I've made a career out of popping pins into the balloons of people's little fantasies about what spirituality is, right? Because spirituality is a very challenging and very difficult process of self-transformation and the role of the guru in that, the Swami, if you want to call it that, is to um, haunt your dreams and shake you till you wake up, right? So it's not about being a nice person, and it's about doing a great work, what, what it is that you need to do to do your part, not just for your spiritual evolution, but for the spiritual evolution of humanity as a whole.
0: Hmm. So it sounds like... <laughs> What you're doing is you're kind of keeping it real, like kind of like
1: asshole-ish, right? <laughs> I have been called that. <laughs>
0: hey, like I've been called so many things as well because sometimes I feel as though when people tell you uh, those nice, bright, you know, love and light things, I kind of call it the Eckhart Tolle sort of thing. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, right? So when people do that, like, and they leave whatever it is, a talk, and they're feeling so inspired, but then the next day and the day after that, they just go back into their regular life. But then you meet that asshole, and that asshole says something. It just, ugh, gets you. And then you just, like, ruminate over what they said for days and weeks, and that may be the change that you need. And I've often found that it may be the assholes that kind of move you towards the path, and in my life, it's been assholes. Like usually guys I've dated who are assholes have like led me down a spiritual path. So, I mean, I say own it, right?
1: That asshole title. Every genuine spiritual teacher in history was was at some degree an asshole, all right? And the people that we think of as not assholes, like, you know, Jesus or the Buddha, it's only because time has whitewashed them so much, right? I mean, consider the Buddha. The Buddha was the closest thing his culture, his society could have imagined to an antichrist. The guy came into this Brahmanist society and he said, your whole caste system is wrong. Your gods are fake. Your whole system of, of, of reincarnation to try to, you know, advance the higher stages. That's all bullshit. There's the only thing you can do is accept that existence is suffering and, you know, all of this stuff that you guys have been practicing is worthless, right? Like, every, that's why for centuries after that, there was persecution of Buddhists in India until eventually they just kind of vanished, right? Because it was, it was like the most, he was like the Richard Dawkins of, of the fifth century, fifth century BC India, right? He was a guy that was just completely in your face about shattering every little religious fantasy, and religious dogma, that the Brahmanist, Indian world had and Jesus I mean even even history hasn't been able to completely whitewash you know his driving out the money lenders with whips in the in the temple right so <laughs> the money changers I need to say but he he uh he was a guy that was that was fierce right and you look at more recent gurus and and the, the people who are like the biggest most powerful most change-inducing teachers in the 20th century, in the various different traditions, um, the guys that really made an impact were were all some degree of asshole, right? You had guys like Aleister Crowley, Gurdjieff. You know, Gurdjieff famously drove away most of his students because he, you know, he made it so so difficult for them. Um, you had, you know, Nisarga You had Osho. You had all of these guys. That we're constantly doing stuff that force you. As soon as you got comfortable with them, to challenge your understanding in some way, and usually by by doing something that would um, that would put on your head your whole idea of this is what a guru is, this is what a guru does, this is what I do as a spiritual person, and you know this is what I have to do to be spiritual, and all of those sorts of things, right? Shogyam Trungpa, the only really decent. Uh, traditional line Buddhist teacher of the 20th century, yeah, you know, was a drunken lunatic, <laughs> but he was an incredible teacher. He changed everything there. So,
0: what happened before you were initiated? What sort of life were you leading?
1: Oh, well, that's an interesting question. Um, I was uh, originally born in Canada, and I had a very comfortable sort of upper middle class childhood you could say and my family was very uh, was very religious they were very they were very Catholic because they were uh, an immigrant family to Canada and um, they were they were strongly strongly Catholic and I was strongly Catholic as a kid and then by the time I was about 16 I'd become a, a, an atheist i you know, rebelled against that. I'd reacted against it and I just kind of rejected the whole thing. And I didn't believe in anything and I was quite determined not to believe in anything for about two years. And then when I was, when I was 18, me and a friend of mine, a high school friend, we were just starting university, but, you know, we're going to the same university. We um, were walking around uh, this one Avenue in the city I was from in Edmonton. That is kind of like got all the little trendy stores and things like that. And he, this guy, this was a guy who was interested, you know, kind of in chasing girls and, in you know, politics and some other stuff. But he wasn't a spiritual guy either. I mean, he was kind of very, very, you know, Sunday, not Sunday, Christmas Catholic, right? He'd go on Christmas and Easter but with his family, but that was it. He was not, a, he was not a, a spiritual thinking guy at all. But for some reason, he told me, we have to go into this store. It was this kind of new age store. And I was like, okay, whatever. So I went in with him. And uh, he was looking around. I don't even know what it is that is that, that drove him to go in there. I don't remember him purchasing anything. Um, but I was walking around the store, and I saw that there was, in this one kind of basket, a deck of tarot cards. I'd never used tarot cards before. I had no interest in them. I had no experience with them. But I saw that that deck, that box. It was a box that had an eye on it. And, and I just said, I have to buy that. I absolutely have to. It was just something that came from completely beyond me. And so I picked it up. I purchased it. And then after that, I started learning, well, what is this about? How do I do this? Right. And everything just kind of spiraled from there. I, I changed my orientation in my history degree to the history of religion and eventually directly to the history of, you know, kind of um, occult movements in in history, you know, and that, that's what led me on the path initially. It was this moment that was a complete, uh, a moment completely outside of any sense of reason. I think that those are the moments that that we some for some reason something triggers within ourselves that we have an opportunity to break out of our patterns when something like that happens. And it's the sort of thing that the I Ching talks about, right? You know, the the, the changing lines. You have changing lines and not changing lines when you cast the I Ching. And an unchanging line means this is a part of what's going on right now, because every hexagram in the I Ching represents what's going on right now. This is a part of what's going on right now that you can't change at all. But the changing lines are the part that you can change. Their, their flexible time as opposed to fixed time and most of the times in those moments people will be too caught up in their what what in I ching talk is the inferior person right in their own conditionings to actually figure out how to do this
0: you know the reason why i wanted to talk to you and we were talking about this uh, i found you via your book which is called the magician's Ching, and i was Attracted to the title because it has the word magician in it, which you know, like I definitely relate to, but also I Ching and Maybe for the audience who doesn't know anything about the I Ching or knows very little about it If you had to give somebody like an elevator pitch on why they should learn about I Ching, what would you say?
1: On why they should learn about it, not on what it is, but just why they should learn about it
0: Let's start say, with what it is and then why they should learn about it.
1: Okay, so the, the very, very short way of putting the I Ching is that it's the oldest continually used book in history. It's 3,000 years old, and it it's a guide to understanding reality and to understanding yourself, and it was the foundation of all Chinese and therefore all other Asian Philosophy, Taoism, and and Confucianism didn't exist at that time. They, when they were born, they were inspired by what was in the I Ching.
0: Would you say that now, then the I Ching, uh, it's similar ish to the Bible?
1: Well, the I Ching is in some ways similar to the Bible in that it's the foundational. Um, Text. It's not like the Bible in that it's not a story, but it's the foundational text of Chinese spirituality. And you'll see all of these lines in the I Ching. Um, each hexagram, in a way, tells its own story, and those stories are all parables in some sense or another. And the lines in those uh, I Ching hexagrams, they they've become many in many cases, you know, common phrases used in China. They're like you know knock on wood, or something like that, right, you know, uh, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, right, those, those sorts of sayings, they, there are lines from the I that are used as that kind of thing, the same way that we use biblical sayings in common English. They permeated every level of, of culture and society, and they're kind of the default model of how, along with the writings of Confucius, of proper social behavior in uh, in the in the Chinese and therefore to a certain degrees in all the rest of the Asian world.
0: That's the I Ching, I guess, in like a very short nutshell, or very small nutshell, yeah. should I say. I haven't really,
1: <laughs> that's not really explaining how it works, but that is, that's explaining what it is.
0: So, in a way, you've also explained why it's important that people look into it, because I know a lot of people in the West, you know, it's like we just learned about Western history and stuff, but History in China is legit. It's long, it's legit, and it influenced the yeah. entire region.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's it's an unchanging, not unchanging in the sense of not developing, but in the sense that they never had a complete civilizational collapse that then changed completely into a different culture. Like with each dynasty and with the various crises that happened in Chinese history, you had changes, sometimes really big changes, in Chinese culture and society. But it was still the same fundamental civilization for 3,000 years, from the time of the Zhu, which were the dynasty that wrote the I Ching, right up until the Communist Revolution. Chinese culture was um, a single thread, whereas in Europe you never had that. You had the Roman Empire, and then the Roman Empire collapsed, and then it became all kinds of other messy things, right? And what I'd say also about why people should study the I Ching. Uh, some of your viewers, I think, are might be familiar with Western magic and Western divination and Western occultism and things like that. Well, I, I wrote the magician's I Ching in part to make it easier for people who are into that to use the I Ching in a practical way because a lot of translations of the I Ching are very, very academic and they're not really focused for practical use. And the ones that claim to be focused for practical use tend to be Kind of New Agey, or you know, just not very. Not they're very, very light, and this is something that is um, keeping to the heaviness of the text, but making a total focus on practical use. Now, the I Ching, a lot of people think it's just kind of like the Tarot of of China, but it's it's a lot more than that. And if you're um, if you're a Western occultist, what you have to understand is that it's not just like the Tarot. It's it's like the Kabbalah of China, right? It's like the fundamental framework of everything that that you see in Asian magic, you know, apart from maybe a few things that date back to like the pre-Confucian shamanism and stuff like that. But in like, especially the high magic, the equivalent of like the kind of Western high magic, the magic that that uh, had to do not with curses and blessings and stuff like that, but with uh, the transformation of the self and you know being able to Speak to gods and command demons and all that sort of stuff. That's all based on the I Ching. The Chinese astrology is based on the I Ching. Feng Shui is based on the I Ching. Qi Gong, and you know, what, well, what today is called Qigong, Gong, but was really other things before that. And by its, by extension, all Chinese martial arts are in some way originally based on the I Ching. So, um, all the I Ching is much more fundamental than just the divination system. And most people in the West and in China just use it kind of for fortune telling. But in in occult schools and in occult kind of mysteries and what have you in um, in China and other parts of Asia, the I Ching is used as the, the basic working tools of Chinese magic.
0: See, I had never even heard about the I Ching being a, a sort of sc- a philosophical school or a cosmological sort of viewpoint. I had only known about I Ching as you like throw some sticks and then you like create these lines and some lines are like dashes and some lines are straight. And then you like look up in a chart, like what it means. And then that means that you should like put money here, you know, like that's the only thing that I knew about I Ching. And I think that's probably like the bulk of even Asian society, as you mentioned, that's how they use it. Um, So how did you, as a Westerner, learn about this and not just the surface level, but like really deep into
1: the I Ching. As I said, in, in university, I had started to get deeply involved in the Western occult. And uh, I was particularly drawn to the kind of magical system of Aleister Crowley because I saw that he was like, not talking about magic just for kind of, Um, some kind of helping your life sort of way, but in the sense of actual, you know, serious transformation, spiritual transformation, and that was something that interested me. And I got to reading the diaries of Crowley and discovered that Crowley actually very rarely used the tarot. If you look at his, his diaries, he would only very occasionally do tarot readings, but he was constantly using the I Ching, even though he didn't really know how to use it right, because there, at, at the time that he was alive, right, we're talking about, um, well, his diaries are from the 1910s and the 1920s, right? At that time, there was no edition of the I Ching that actually contained the method of doing an Yi Ching casting. So he was guessing based on, or kind of interpreting based on stuff that he saw in China when he when he went all across China on a donkey in 1905, I think it was 1905, 1906, something like that. And he was he was interpreting kind of that 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 system. He he made a, he made up his own way of, of reading the I Ching using six sticks, and uh, it, it it was actually pretty close. It wasn't bad. It, I mean, it's 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 not nearly as sophisticated as the Yarrow method, which is That means that the bottom is mountain or earth. The bottom trigram, that is. And so far, no changing lines. ...method, which is the real kind of method using the 50 euro stocks that, that you have in the ancient. but he he he, even then, even with such a... Um, limited ability to study the I Ching, Crowley got right away that it was hugely important. He was using it on a on a really constant basis, and he wrote he famously did the the Toth Tarot deck, and then he did the Book of Toth, and he wrote those quite late in life. And the next thing he was planning to do was an equivalent version of the I Ching, but he actually died before he before he completed it. Very unfortunate for the world, I think, but. When I saw that, when I saw all about Crowley's own interest in the ancient, I said, well, I've got to check this out. And I picked up, I think the first version that I picked up was, um, it, it wasn't even the Wilhelm translation, um, but it was, it was one of these academic translations that was very dry. And then I checked out the, the Wilhelm and... And the Wilhelm version is better, the, the, which is probably it's probably the most the best sold English version of the I Ching. Um, but it's still an extremely academic perspective, right? And it makes it was very difficult to read and to understand as a as a near total beginner. Eventually, I found uh, another translation of the I Ching. The uh, oh yeah the 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 Blofeld translation, the one by John Blofeld, which was very popular in the nineteen sixties. And that's a very good translation, though it's very bare bones. It's it's just kind of the the raw material of the, the the hexagrams with no real explanation, except a very brief introduction of how to do a casting, and and that's it. But just from that, I was like very very drawn into it, and I began to study it, and that was you know twenty four years ago, I guess. Now <laughs> I'm old, and uh, so I started um, I started studying the I Ching from there. But my I Ching studies were always kind of from the point of view of using it as a divination tool, in the way I use the tarot, until I um, I got to that point when when I was you know when I got out of my master's program and became an initiated, became a swami. I had gone to Vancouver to practice these meditation techniques, which are not Chinese. Uh, you know, my it's swami is not a Chinese title; it's a it's an Indian title, and you know, I was doing stuff that was basically um, uh, tantrism, you could say. But I was living literally a block south of Vancouver's Chinatown. Vancouver has the second biggest Chinatown in North America. Only San Francisco is bigger. And it's, it's just quite an amazing place. And I had already been learning a little bit of Qigong before I got there. And so I decided to go look. To learn some really serious Qigong, I had hoped to find with a um, with teacher. And I did find a teacher, and then he led me to another teacher. And uh, this other teacher was talking a little bit about the I Ching in ways that I had never really experienced. And he was talking about the I Ching in the context of kind of of esoteric Neo Confucianism, the closest thing to Western high magic that you see in, in Chinese culture and I, I was very fascinated by that and at the same time I got familiar enough in Chinatown that became, you know because at first it was very challenging you know they, among the kind of the locals to be um, to be seen as something other than a the tourist I had to learn how to play Jeanqui uh, Chinese chess and that was really I think that was a, a turning point was when I was at the Vancouver night market and I was playing Chinese chess against Chinese people they were just there's no, there was no kind of concern at that time. I don't think there would be today either about something like cultural appropriation because they understood, they, they felt kind of like um, very, very happy that here was this white guy that had such respect and, and, and honored their, their own culture and their own tradition that they were very, you know, they were pleased. They thought it was curious, but that kind of, when they saw that I was taking it seriously and that I wasn't just... Kind of screwing around, um, I started to get more more inroads there and I started to run into also a lot of the kind of the fortune tellers that were there in Chinatown, which were not kind of highbrow guys. They were fortune tellers just like fortune tellers anywhere in the world that are, you know, very practical guys. And, and in, in every culture except maybe modern Western culture, f- fortune tellers, tarot readers or palm readers or I Ching or whatever, And you don't go to them to learn about kind of like your psychological state or to get some kind of vague thing about, oh, things are going well for you, but kind of whatever. No, no. People go because they're like, I want to know if my son is going to get married this year, right? (laughs) Or I want to know if uh, I'm going to get pregnant and if it's going to be a boy, right? And and stuff like this. right I want to know if I can get that raise at this job, right? Uh, Like very, very specific stuff. But they have to have very specific answers to and so I discovered at the same time that while I was looking at this kind of high tradition of what the I Ching is, there was this low tradition, you could say, the street-side fortune tellers, and they had totally different methods because a lot of them never even used the book, the text itself. They just worked with the hexagrams and, and interpreted the elements of the hexagrams and the lines and their positions, and they would they would never look at the book because these came from traditions where a lot of the people who were are who using this were illiterate, so they couldn't read the book. All they could do is, you know, by kind of process of memory and word of mouth, learn how to interpret the lines and their positions and the trigrams and the elements to um, to be able to tell a very practical fortune. And so I kind of got the best of both worlds there. That, that opened my eyes. I saw, okay, there's a whole bunch of stuff about the I Ching as divination that has never been published in any Western book. And there's a whole bunch of stuff about the I Ching as not just divination, but as a system for self-transformation and as a system for understanding reality itself, space and time, that almost every book has failed to talk about in the West.
0: That's the most fascinating part. Okay, you can definitely find books, like tons and tons of books about how to interpret the hexagrams for divination. Um, But this idea of using the I Ching for magic. Well, let's just forget, you know, using it for, you know, personal transformation and alchemy and esoteric texts about that I can sort of understand, you know, like even tarot can be used for inner alchemy and stuff. But it's just like when when I learned that people were using tarot, like the actual cards and like the, the energies around them for magic, that kind of blew my mind. And now learning that the I Ching can also be used for magic. And when I think of magic, I think of less, oh, I'm just going to accept fate and magic is a little bit more. Well, the energy seems to be moving this way. I want it to move a little bit more this way. How can we close that gap? How does a person use I Ching as a magical tool?
1: Well, in the first place, it's kind of like you say that, because I think that you have to use. If you're going to use magic effectively, you have to be going through a process of what, um, what in kind of the Chinese culture they called cultivation, and uh, what we could call I guess practice. That you're you're doing a daily process of of meditation and exercises that are internal exercises on yourself, inner alchemy, right? So at the very least, you have to kind of be meditating, and you have to be or doing you know yoga or concentration exercises or something like that Why? because because your ability to change reality depends on your ability to perceive reality beyond your normal boundaries. Okay, so it's it's a bit like uh, you know the movie The Matrix, right? No. That uh, the people who don't know that they're that they're in the Matrix can't can't do anything to change anything, right? The people that know that they're not that they're you know that they're in the Matrix and can then re-enter the Matrix and do stuff, and then Neo. Who like sees the code that's behind all the matrix can do you know just about anything so your awareness is the driving force for your ability to create change in reality your ability to create change in the world this is why and, and it's it makes it very difficult for some people who feel impatient and just really want to be able to I don't know, use, uh, use magic to, to get money and wealth and power or whatever right and I've had students that, that were Coming to me, and they're like, yeah, I want to change my life. I want to, I don't know, get a better job or whatever. And and uh, and I'm like, well, okay, but this is this isn't really about that. This is about transforming yourself, right? And then you'll see what it is you really want to do because the problem is, you don't really know what you want to change until you know yourself, right? That was the 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 point of the sign at the entrance to the Oracle of Delphus, right? Know thyself, right? Until you know yourself, you don't know what questions to ask, right? You don't know. You can't even do divination because you don't really know what are the truly important things that you want to or need to know until you've looked within yourself. So that's essential. But then you can you can do that internal practice and then you can also do external things in the world. And doing external things in the world are done through um, a couple of different uh aspects to them. Because there has to be one aspect, which is about living out in an ordinary way the change that's going on within. Because you, you could be having like all these wonderful spiritual experiences, and you're seeing gods and angels and devils and all this stuff. And if you don't change at all in the world, then that's you're just hallucinating, right? There's nothing that's actually going on. So you have to develop what in in um, in the I Ching is 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 termed virtue, and it's um, this is a fundamental part of any cultivation practice that that comes from Asian magic, and it's it's part of it's implied in the very first line of the I Ching, because there's this um, the first line of the I Ching is Yuan Li Yijun, which means divine celestial forces in motion, and this is. The, the essence of virtue. Virtue in, 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 um, in Mandarin, I guess it would be, is, is de, which is, um, it means power, but it also means virtue. So how virtuous you are determines how powerful you are. This isn't morality, like virtue in the sense of being a nice person. These are certain specific traits that you have to develop that gives you an ability to do good in the world, but also to use your power to change things in the world. And, and the four primary sort of traits represented by Yuan Hao Lixian are uh, your discipline, your harmony or balance, right? how internally balanced you are, how disciplined you are as a person, your uh, truth, your ability to, to both be truthful and to see what is true, And then union, which is your ability to be connected to everything that's around you, right? To be connected to the universe, you could say, which is also union and love are synonyms, right? So it's it's your ability to connect to other people and your ability to connect to the environment and to the world. So only when you can do those things can you then really effectively do magic. And then once when you have been doing those things, when you have been cultivating, magic becomes much easier. It's just a matter of learning. These elements and being able to manipulate them through ritual forms. In the I Ching, the elements are represented by the eight trigrams, which are the the eight building blocks of reality. Reality starts with just just pure emptiness, which is uh, which is Wu, and then it turns into a, a complete and absolute isness, a oneness, which is called uh, Taiji. Right, which is where you know, which is what we usually think of as the yin yang symbol. Right, that, that's the Taiji, the, the the white and the black mixed together inside of a circle. And that white and black, which are are at first completely part of that oneness, but then divide into two, are yin and yang. And the yin and yang then break up into four, which are the four primal forces of of reality, which are also connected to the four virtues. So when you're when you're connecting to those virtues. You're tapping into a deeper, a higher, or, or or more fundamental level of reality that lets you then manipulate things. And those four ver- uh, primal forces divide into the eight elements. There's four celestial elements and four terrestrial elements. And the way that they've been translated in most teaching um, translations sometimes makes it difficult to note this. But the the lower four are basically the four elements of Western magic as well, earth, air, fire, and water. And then the higher four are the moon, the sun, the world, and heaven. So these are the, the, the powers that you can then work with. And the way that this magic is worked with is, is to me very interesting, because different schools in history have applied them in different ways. So there were the schools that incorporated this into Qigong to make it into a, a very physical kind of magic that involved movement and stepping and the use of different mudras, you know, positions of the hands um, that were all meant to invoke different forces, earth, air, fire, and water, exactly, right? And, uh, and to invoke the celestial forces. And there were schools that used this for uh, kind of this, they used the each kind of like a grimoire, where they would uh, use different hexagrams to connect to different spirits or different demons, right? And then there were other schools that that use the basis of the, the trigrams or the hexagrams to make talismans that you would empower to do different tasks, right? And they were there were many different ways of creating these different talismans. So these were all parts of um, I Ching-related magic that came up in the West. And really, all of Qigong, and that includes stuff that came out of Qigong, which included kind of like acupuncture and all that stuff, started as I Ching based magic, right? The, the foundations of Qigong were what was from a school called the School of Yin and Yang that came up sometime around the time of Confucius, so about, about 500 BC, possibly a little earlier, possibly a little later, we're not sure, but they were. Um, this was a school that taught movements that allowed you to affect the balance of your qi, your yin and your yang within yourself and then to be able to use this, often in conjunction with the elements, to create changes on the, on the outside. In particular, they used it for things like healing, but you could also use it for things like harming and a lot of the, the so-called internal martial arts came out of that tradition. So all of this stuff, right? Like I said, Chinese astrology, and also uh, feng shui, which in the West today we think of as like rearranging, yeah. <laughs> rearranging your your furniture in your house, you know, to to get good chi or something like that. Um, that's not really what feng shui was, right? Like feng shui w- worked originally as a system to determine where to. Construct first of all, it was tombs—the tombs of kings, right? That's what feng shui was used for. His tombs were very important in the time of the Zhu dynasty, so you had to have the right place to put your tomb. It was super important for all kinds of religious reasons. And feng shui again uses the eight elements. It uses the Bagua circle. You still, if you get a feng shui compass today, that the the trigrams and sometimes even the hexagrams of the I Ching are on that compass, so that. Um, <coughs> So that a, a feng shui expert can look based on the compass and determine, you know, which of the hexagrams rules the direction in which in which the, the position is located that you're thinking of building something or putting something. right?
0: OK, so I'm still trying to ground the I Ching into the sort of like historical context and everything. So if everything comes from the I Ching, uh, who wrote it? Where does it come from?
1: So this is a more complicated question than it looks. The I Ching didn't have one single author. In the first place, we're fairly sure that the method of the I Ching was not something that was just suddenly invented. It was something that gradually evolved. But there's a lot of mythology about it in China about how the I Ching happened. And some of that mythology we know isn't right because there's stuff that they that they attribute, for example, the uh, you know that there's the, the the Bagua circle, the circle that has the, the eight trigrams arranged in it, and there's one that's that's called the King Wen circle or the you know uh, later Heaven circle, and then another one that's called the Fuji circle or the earlier Heaven circle. That one is supposedly was created by Fuji. Fuji was the legendary founder, the culture founder. It, it really, he was like the The first man, right, and so like they, they, this is an idea that is that has been a part of kind of Chinese mythology about the I Ching, that Fuji, the the first real dude, right, the one that there's this whole story about him in Chinese um, history about how in his time people were different, right? They they were they're kind of innocent, they had no understanding of things, they didn't know where babies came from, they didn't know how to farm, they didn't know. Uh, they didn't have marriage, they didn't know how to tend livestock, they didn't know how to do any of these things. Um, but Fuji was a particularly clever dude, and he was told that there was this flood coming that was going to bury the whole world, right? Just like, you know, the flood myth is all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. And so Fuji took his sister, Nuwa, and the two of them fled to the top of the holy mountain. And the flood came and killed everybody else. But Fuji and his sister survived, so they got married, and that's how you started that was the beginning of marriage, right, which was one of the many things he invented. Then he invented farming, and then he invented animal husbandry and all this sort of stuff. And according to legend, Fuji also uh, discovered the eight trigrams when a turtle came out of the river and did had markings of the eight trigrams on its back. And he kind of realized that the eight elements, you know, what, that the trigrams represented the eight elements and how that this let you understand nature. And so this allowed him to do things like knowing when to plant crops and went to you know how to how to go through all the cycle of the year and farming and all that. So it's a legend, right? It's a legend that kind of tries to explain um, how these symbols were meant to represent these ideas that were um, fundamental for ancient people to understand how to live. And what we what we know, we don't know exactly when the trigrams really started being used. But we know that there was something similar. That there was something similar to the I Ching that was going on before the I Ching existed as a book. Now, in the time of the end of the Shang dynasty, which was the really the first real dynasty, because there were other legendary dynasties of China. Like if you, if you as a the Chinese, they have like you know thousands and thousands of years more history. That's all like that kind of legendary history, the Yellow Emperor and all these guys. But so the first dynasty of China that we can actually prove really existed. was called the Shang Dynasty. And the Shang Dynasty ruled for, we're not sure exactly how long, but probably several hundred years um, up until 1100 BC. And the Shang Dynasty, they were ruled by these kind of um, priest kings or wizard kings. It was one of the central things, we know it was one of the central things of their civilization, was divination. And they did divination by taking a turtle shell and putting it over a flame until it cracked, and then they would look at the lines that those cracks formed and interpret those lines to determine the future. And this was hugely important to them in their rituals. They did this all the time And in archaeological digs. We found unbelievable amounts of these turtle shells, and and, and very convenient for us, they would write the question. That was being asked in the divination, and then at the uh, in a lot of them, it even says like, "Are uh, did it turn out or not?" Right? Like it, it says, uh, you know, this didn't come true or this happened or stuff like that. Right? So like, there were there was all varieties of questions, and in in the Shang period, this clearly helped guide them and kind of how to how to do their civilization. So I think they're kind of like learning how to interpret this um, this system of divination in a way to to evolve, right? To evolve their civilization. But they eventually fell into decadence. And you can even see this in, again, the archeological evidence of these turtle shells, because in the early period of the Shang, you'd see these questions that were about um, all kinds of things and you got all kinds of answers, right? So it was like, will the king have a son? And the answer is, uh, no, the king won't have a son or uh, the king will have a son, but it will die very young stuff like this, stuff that wasn't always good news, right? And by the end of the Shang dynasty, the divinations were all saying the same thing. Everything is great and all is well and there's great success coming, right? So you could, when, when you get that, you know that it turned into propaganda, right? And that this was a, a dynasty that was in trouble because if you have to keep being told again and again and again, everything's wonderful, you don't have to change anything, it means that something's actually really wrong. Now, the Shang had all kinds of vassal states that were around them; these these, um, these lesser tribes that they had conquered, and they governed over all of them. But when the last Shang emperor came along, who was a, an absolute um, lunatic, really. He was like, you know, if you know the stories of like Nero or Caligula, the the last Shang emperor fits right in with them. Right? He would kill people just for fun. He would torture them in unbelievable ways. He'd like have them sat on these these sharp rager razors until they were cut in half. He would, you know, decapitate people just because um, and he just he spent all of the, the treasury of the of the of the dynasty on on building this enormous beautiful palace that was filled with gold and in the middle of the palace he had like this miniature lake of wine and in the center of the lake he had an island that had trees made out of sticks with deer meat on them. And they would have these lavish orgies there, and then they would like kill people for fun at these lavish orgies. It's just all this stuff. They just couldn't believe. It's just unbelievably villainous and corrupt. Now, part of this might be propaganda of the next dynasty that overthrew him, right? But there's enough reason to think he must have been doing something wrong, right? So one of these vassal tribes was called the Zhu, and their leader was a chief named Wen. And he had... Been a very faithful subject of the Shang for a long time, and he even helped kind of try to stop revolt or rebellion from happening. At least that's again the official story, right? But this also ties into Chinese Chinese notions about loyalty and the importance of obeying superiors and all that. It all has a very cultural element to it. But he went, according to the legend, he went to the Shang emperor, and he was pleading with the Shang emperor to show moderation. And the Shang emperor put him in jail. He was imprisoned. And Chief Wen was a very studious person, and the Zhu also had divination, and they used divination with lines, right, which were the lines of the Yi Qing. And King Wen, while he was in jail, decided to write the, um, the, the, a, a description, a book, about the 64 hexagrams that you can form with those lines, with those six lines. And this was the very start of the Qing. That was the first part of it, where he put each of the hexagrams and their descriptions. King Wen died, and then his son, his sons, all of his sons, rose up a revolt. They, had, they united all the different vassal tribes. They went into the palace. They burned it down. They killed the last Chang emperor. And King Wen's oldest surviving son became the new, uh, the new king, the first, the first emperor of the Zhu dynasty. Uh, which was the dynasty that succeeded, and, and the chief chief Wen became a posthumous king because of that. And one of the king's younger sons, uh, Duke Zhu, Duke he took his father's book and expanded on it by adding the descriptions of the six lines for each of the hexagrams. Again, this is the legend. What may have really happened is that this was a very important sort of divination system of the Zhu, And part of all this legend is also to suggest that the Zhu were much more um, moral, more virtuous than the Shang. And part of it was also uh, something that you see, that there was a a better technology, a better divination technology. Because the Shang, for their divination technology, you needed the king. The king had to get the the, um, turtle shell, he was a vital part of the process. And then it was very difficult. Only the you know the, the the people who had the the special powers, only the wizard priests could interpret the um, the turtle shells, right? But the Jew, they invented a system that anyone could use, and this was like a huge breakthrough, right? It was like the difference from the point of view of kind of divination technology, if you want to call it that. It was a it was a, a revolution. It's like the difference between you know calligraphy in in monasteries and the printing press, right? Suddenly everybody could do could do divination. And so the, the Zhu, probably what happened was that at the beginning of the Zhu dynasty, they actually got a bunch of scribes together and they worked out what the text was gonna be. But this got attributed, of course, to the royal family because you know you always do that. You always say, well, it was actually, you know yeah, King Wen did it and then his son finished it, right? So this is the core text of the I Ching, the part that most people think of in the West today as the I Ching is those two parts, the part that King Wen did and the part that Duke Xu did, um, and they're they're actually um, most Western teaching translations have only those parts in them, except some of the more academic ones like the Wilhelm translation, which add in what became the third vital part, which are the Confucian commentaries, which didn't happen until six more than six hundred years later. Right? So we're talking about five hundred BC when Confucius comes along. Um, the I Ching was already ancient; was already as old to him as the Tarot is to us, right? That's how how long it had been around. And again, according to legend, Confucius studied the I Ching seriously only when he was kind of past middle age. And he was supposed to have said that uh, if I had only a few more years to live, I'd dedicate sixty of them to studying the I Ching. Right, um, As if, to say, you can never study it enough, there's, all, there's always these layers upon layers of it. Um, historically, there's a lot of debate as to whether Confucius actually ever talked about or studied the I Ching. Because the Analects, which are his most famous texts, barely, they, they don't even register there, right? And he actually kind of talks against divination there. So, but But, but the Confucian commentaries, which are attributed to Confucius, certainly came out of that school of Confucian thinking that probably happened after his death. So if it wasn't literally Confucius talking about it, it was people who were inspired by Confucius talking about it and then attributing it to Confucius. So what was clear is that the Confucian school embraced the I Ching, but they embraced it because they realized that it wasn't just about telling fortune, which was what where it started, but um, or, you know, learning how, you know, giving a guide to statecraft, which was what the Zhu used it for, right? Like, how to be a good king. But they realized it was also about how to transform yourself as a person, right? The, the, the part that Confucius really changes is he adds the part that in, in my book, in, in the hexagrams, I call, well, the commentary, but also the part that, that I call the great work, which is where for every hexagram he says, this, when this hexagram comes up, this is what the superior individual would do, right? So the superior individual is that part of yourself that is your your higher self, as opposed to the inferior person, which is the lower self. In a lot of other translations, they call it the great man or, and the lesser man or something like that, right? Or the, the low man and the high man or stuff like that. But... Uh, I decide to call it the, the inferior person, as in the persona, the fake personality of yourself, of who you think you are when you're not, when you're ignorant, right? When you're when you're not being conscious, versus the true superior individual, the self that you are when you're being conscious, when you discover the, your individuality. And so you'll get a hexagram, you know, like um, hexagram number 28. I'm just kind of peeking at my book here. Um, excess, right, and the description of it is the beam sags, it cannot hold, it's good to have a goal. Um, and then the great work, it says, the superior individual, although alone, is free from fear. He has no trouble withdrawing from the world, right? So the meaning of the hexagram is that it's it's saying that there's too much pressure, excess weight, right? And that, that, that things are going to collapse, they're going to break. And so you have to um, either... Uh, move forward or prop things up or back up because this isn't going to last where you're at, right? And so that's stuff that you can apply to a situation when you're asking about, I don't know, my work or something like that, you know, what, how, how are things at my job? Well, if you get hexagram 28, there's probably a stressful situation and something's going to fall apart there, right? If you're, if you're not very, very careful. So you can get guidance to how to do that right. But in terms of the self, there's also this question of this choice you're making of, How are you going to act in that situation? Are you going to be the best possible person you can be in that situation? Or are you going to be, you know, a kind of crappy version of yourself and do things wrong and mess it up more, right? So this was what Confucius or the Confucian school was really interested in, is how since the I Ching measures every single moment of time, part of what Confucius believed in was that in every single moment we're constantly faced with this choice. Are we going to be the superior individual, or are we going to be the inferior person? Are we going to be the worst of ourselves, or are we going to be the best of ourselves? And you can choose every time, every single moment. So the I Ching, he wrote the commentaries, or the commentaries that were written in his name, are basically an elaboration of how to use the I Ching for that process of self-transformation to individualize, right? Um, In a way, it's kind of, the world's first psychology book but it's you know a really profound spiritual psychology I don't know Did I answered the question or did I go crazy there no,
0: now now I feel as though okay that makes total sense so it started off more as like a bunch of ancient people trying to feel a sense of control by using a divination system and then because China has this long unbroken sort of history then there were layers upon layers on top of that more sophisticated thinking that went on top of that
1: and the the I Ching doesn't really stop as a book with confucius what happened was that it became canonized it became one of the five classics they called it mm-hmm. at the time of the true you know the beginning of the imperial china when the um, it was it was determined that you know the the imperial school for bureaucrats because china was actually a very for a while at least a very meritocratic system of government where if you it no matter it didn't matter who you were if you could pass the examinations you could become a civil officer and civil officers could eventually become governors and very important things so it was based purely on your your merit i mean in theory in practice i'm sure there was bribery and stuff like that that happened right like like everywhere but this was part of what Confucius brought to China was this idea that everybody has the potential to be the superior individual. So we have to educate everybody. So it had you know, much more widespread education than you saw in other parts of the world. And then everybody has a chance potentially to rise up to whatever their great, uh, whatever their, their true will will lead them to, right? whatever their, their, their greatest potential should be. So just because you were born a peasant, Doesn't mean you should live like a peasant. You should have a chance to see if you should be, you know, a general or a a governor or something like that, right? Or a judge or whatever. And it should be based on your studies and your abilities. So the question was, how do we grade this, right? Because this was the the Confucian system was really amazing. People think of it, they think of of, of Chinese philosophy and of Confucian philosophy as being something that uh, was all about conformity and all about the collective, right? People. In the West, there's especially this mentality that, oh, you know, the Chinese are just, you know, they don't even think in terms of individuals. They always think about the family and the group and the state and stuff like that. And that's, that's not right. Um, they, they, there's a different emphasis placed on the importance. The thing that's central in kind of Asian philosophy is that um, you're not the center of the world, right? As opposed to in the West where people, you know, Western individualism, part of that says you're the center of the world but Eastern individualism is different. It says only by what Confucius did, is he taught only by um, discovering yourself as an individual, can you serve the rest of humanity, right? And so your individualism is in the service of humanity, but it's absolutely individualistic, right? And that's why Confucianism beat these other schools that came at the same time that were saying, no, you know, the individual doesn't matter or only the king matters, or only the collective matters. No, 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 it's an individualist system. And so they started this training for civil servants. And they said, well, we have to test them. And they tested them on five books, which were called the five classics. And one of those five books was the I Ching, as it then existed. So that meant that after that, there anything else that was written to add to the I Ching was not part of the official I Ching. It was just kind of like additional commentaries. But there were additional commentaries. There was huge amounts for the next you know, 2,000 years after the start of the, the you know that period, where every great philosopher of China said something about the I Ching, and most of its poets said something about the I Ching, and so you have the work of, of guys like Chao um, right, and uh, some of the Zhu Xi, uh, who who wrote volumes of these profound things that add to the way you can understand the I Ching but that are never, ever found in in a teaching translation in
0: the West. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Witches and Wine audio experience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can choose between a few membership tiers. They're super affordable and flexible your membership helps me continue making videos, podcasts, articles, lots of different things about all the sweet witchy stuff. Links are in the show notes. Also, don't forget to go on iTunes and give this a five-star rating. Each five-star rating helps rank this podcast higher in searches so that as many witches can find and enjoy these episodes as well. Until next time, this is Chawan signing off.